Welcome to this week's podcast. Joining me for part two is Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont. Mike Bowman, welcome back to Facing the Canon. Great to be with you again. We had such a great time in episode number one, and this is episode number two. And just to remind you, this is a series that we're doing, which we haven't done before, a four-part series with Mike Bowman on the Bible. And today, Mike, we want to focus on the Old Testament. How many books are there in the Old Testament? Well, we've got 39 books in the original Hebrew Bible. Some Christian traditions have some others added, the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books. Um, But we're looking at 39 books today. And tell us, what's the breakup of all the books? Depends whether you're a Jew or a Christian. Um, You know, Jews used to divide what we call the Old Testament, what they call the Tanakh, into three sections. T stood for Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. The N stood for Nevi'im, the prophets. And the K stood for Ketuvim, the writings, law, prophets, and writings, three clear sections. In our Christian Bible, same books, but it's a bit like we've put the books on different shelves, categories in our library. And we have the law at the beginning, followed by what we would call history books, followed by some of these poetic and wisdom books, and then all the prophets put together at the end. Now, some people uh, might, scientists especially, have a problem with Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Okay, what do we say to scientists? (laughs) Well, yeah, these are uh, big issues, aren't they? And they are for many Christians, you know, and if there's If there are two places that Christians get into fighting about, it's how everything began and how everything will end, the beginning and the end of the story. So I want to tread carefully because I'm aware that there are some Christians who hold very strong views on both sides here. Something it's really important that we believe that the world was created in six days, just like the Bible says, or at least appears to say. Uh, Why? Well, they feel that if we undermine that, it's like the thin end of the wedge. What do we undermine next? So I understand people who feel that we have to fight for that. They're wanting to fight for the Bible as God's word. But, you know, just as it's important we don't make the Bible say less than it says by taking stuff away, it's important we don't make the Bible say more than it says. And I'm not convinced Genesis 1 and 2 was ever written to teach us science. After all, science as a category is a very modern concept. Science didn't exist. And really, Genesis 1 and 2 aren't written to answer the question, how? Really, all it says is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that about sums it up. It's not written to answer the question, how it's really designed to lead us not to how but to wow it's designed to say look at this incredible world and you know these days we understand perhaps better than any previous generation how intricately this world this cosmos has been put together the incredible balance and how easy it is to throw it out of balance and the whole of genesis 1 and 2 is designed to show us 
that however it came about, and I'm happy to leave that to the scientists of whom I am not one, it was brought about by a God with incredible care who entrusted to us as human beings the responsibility of caring for that world, a task that we're seeing increasingly we've not done a very good job of, have we? No, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I often say, Mike, look, it doesn't really matter how we got here. The story starts when we get here. And, you know, that's very important. And sometimes uh, we can debate and we end up stalemate. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I will often direct people to from the story is this whole idea of the world created in six days. Was it meant to be six 24 hours? Is that what the author intended? Or did he mean something other? Did he mean six phases, six periods of time, as some people have, have suggested? Well, here's an interesting thing. In the text itself, in the Hebrew text, the word for day is the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M. And it has quite a wide range of meanings. It means day in the sense that day does in English. Uh, it could mean 24 hours or it could mean, you know, in my day, we wouldn't have got away with that at school meaning in my period when I was younger. So it has quite a wide range of meanings. And even in the early chapters of Genesis, it has that range of meanings. So the word yom is used for each day. God did this, day one, yom one, yom two. And then Genesis 2, 4 sums up. Uh, most of our English Bibles say, giving a summary of it, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God created them. But that little word when, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when the Lord made them, in Hebrew is literally in the day that the Lord created them, in the yom that the Lord created them. So in chapter one, it looks like yom could be 24 hours, but clearly in chapter two, it's absolutely not. It's talking about that time when. So even in the Hebrew text itself, it seems to me the question is left open. And so that's why I always say, listen, whichever view you hold to, it really isn't worth fighting about between ourselves. And for me, the text itself opens up the possibility of a much longer and more complex period that can easily fit in with what scientists discover and may yet discover, which will probably contradict what many scientists Absolutely. even think today. How would you summarise what the message of the first five books of the Bible are about? Mm. God made an incredibly beautiful world and he put human beings in it to care for it and look after it. And they messed up. They got it wrong and they got it wrong through the most fundamental fact of human life, thinking they knew better than God. Now, that's the story of God saying you can eat of any fruit in this garden I've put you in, but just don't eat of that one over there, because in the day you do eat of it, you'll die. And of course, what is the one fruit that Adam and Eve want to eat from in that story? It's that one they've been told they can't eat from. Still see that repeated in young children today, don't you? You know, you can't have that. That's the one thing they want. And so from the human races feeling that they knew better than God, they messed up and spoiled their life, their relationship with God and started to spoil the world itself. It's actually what the Bible will call later sin. <laughs> 
It's a rather religious word, isn't it? But it means thinking we know best and living by our standards rather than God's. And so the human race is expelled from that garden. And then in Genesis chapters 4 to 11, we see a record of how the human race at one level is incredibly creative, as we know it is. We see the development of music and metalwork and fantastic things like this, creativity. But at the same time, we see the development of rivalry and murder and fighting, what we see in the human race today. And God seeks to deal with that through the story of Noah and the flood. And when that still doesn't fix it, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, we encounter a guy called Abraham, a man who didn't believe in God. He came from a place in Ur in Mesopotamia uh, that at that time was well known as a city of moon worship. So it's quite likely that Abraham and his family were moon worshippers when the living God suddenly broke in, revealed himself to him and said, I'm going to choose you. And through you and through your faith and trust in me, I'm going to produce a family of faith that one day will fill this whole earth and run this place like it was meant to be run at the beginning. So those first five books of what went wrong, the start of God's plan to put it right through calling Abraham, through whom he will have a family of faith. Then we get the story of Abraham's son, Isaac, and his son, Jacob, and his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel that will end up in slavery in Egypt and will be rescued from there by God through Moses and led out of there to their promised land of Canaan that we now call Israel. And there will begin his plan of salvation, not just for Israel, but for every descendant of Abraham, everyone who will believe in God and get back to doing it his way and from whom he'll one day send the promised Messiah, Jesus, whose death will deal with the stuff that's wrong and enable us to come into relationship and friendship with God and learn how to start living right. That's why the Old Testament is such an exciting book. Now, a lot of the laws, uh, a lot of the rituals, a lot of the regulations. Now, Orthodox Jews, many of them still observe those. Mm. How do we observe them as Christians? Um, You know, it says, the Old Testament says, don't eat bats. That's probably very good advice, yeah, isn't yeah, I it? Think particularly after COVID, it's probably very good advice. Very good it? advice. <laughs> but then it says, don't mix cotton uh, in your garments. Yes. Okay, so how do we know what's relevant today? Yeah. I think one of the important things to remember is that this law was given as an expression of God's covenant with Israel. Covenant means his binding promises, agreement. And through this people, he was going to prepare a place and prepare a people for the coming of a Messiah who would be for the whole world. But this was a covenant with Israel and God wanted them to know, do you know what? There's not a part of life that I don't want to be in. Now, that principle is still really important today. And so it came down to things like not just how you offer a sacrifice, but hey, even the clothes you wear don't have a mixture of different fabrics. Now, is that because God is as wearing clothing that is anti-mixed fabric? Well, if so, I'm probably breaking the rules today. 
know it all, it, it was a picture for them. It was a constant reminder that even what they wore, they were supposed to be a people without mixture, a people who were wholly given to God, not God and, as would be so often the case in the Old Testament, the gods like Baal. So even their clothing was a reminder of single-hearted devotion to prayer. Prayer tassels that they wore, a constant reminder of the need to lift up their day to God. Now, all of that was vitally important to them as part of their identity of God's people. But that covenant that God made with them is not the covenant that God has made with you and me. He's made a covenant with you and me through Jesus and all of those laws hung on that covenant. They were expressions of it. By the way, it's important to remember, some Christians get this wrong. They often read the Old Testament and think, oh, the Old Testament was, if Israel believed all these things, then God would accept them. No. In the book of the law, we see that God reveals himself first and calls upon his people to trust in him through faith. Having done that, he then calls upon them to live in a certain way. It's interesting when they come out of slavery in Egypt and are taken down to Mount Sinai where he gives these laws. It's in Exodus 19 where God says to them, out of all the peoples of the earth, I've chosen you to be my special people. Yes. There it is. There's the chosen bit. Then in chapter 20 onwards, we get the now live like this. Now you know you're mine. Here's how I want you to live. So the laws were consequences of their being saved, not conditions for their being saved. First five books of the Bible, the law. What follows that? Well, in our uh, English order of Bibles, we've then got what we would call um, the history books, which is the stories starting from the book of Joshua, Israel going into the promised land, to the stories in Kings and Chronicles to Israel going into exile and then losing their promised land. So it's the story of Israel going into their land right through to when they lost that land through their disobedience. The story of Joshua taking the promised land and getting settled there. Uh, the story of Israel feeling that they needed a king in order to be like all the other nations round about them. God giving them the best that he could find by the standard they were looking for, King Saul. And it didn't work, did it? Because God had other things in mind. He was looking at things differently. And so that's followed by the story of King David, his chosen one, and his son, King Solomon. And then sadly, after Solomon, through the foolishness of his son Rehoboam, the nation splitting into two. Now an Israel known as Israel in the north, formed of ten tribes, and Judah in the south. And we get that story followed through until the ten tribes in the north are exiled, conquered by Assyria, and the two in the south later conquered by Babylon and exiled there to eventually come back. So we've got now the story of God's people getting settled in that land and why they ended up getting expelled from it. So we've got the law, we've got the history. What follows the history? We've then got in our uh, Christian traditions, we've got a section of what we call the writings, which are things like 
Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, all of which are wise reflections on life in light of the law that God has given. What's this look like in life? What works? What helps us in life? And hey, how do we handle life when things go wrong? So they're called in our tradition wisdom writings because they're trying to look for God's wisdom, God's wise ways for life. And the book of Psalms has, ah, the Lord has used that over centuries uh, to bring wisdom, guidance, comfort, encouragement, and uh, and it's a substantial book. How would you sum up the book of Psalms? Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you how I sum it up. It's about life. It's got everything of life in there. It's got life's joys and ecstatic moments, and it's got life's depths and despair when things go wrong, when you feel abandoned by God. I mean, even one of the Psalms talks about, it talks about when you're mad with people. I mean, there are some interesting Psalms with things like, oh God, I wish you would smash their teeth. Yes. Now, is is that what God thinks? No. That was actually what the writer felt, and not necessarily what we God felt. feel that, don't we? Absolutely. Come on, I'm sure everybody who's watching this today has had moments when they have not felt, Jesus bless you, my brother and sister. Well, I, what you I, really I, wanted to do was punch him in the teeth. It, it's and all of that's there in, in the Psalms, this expression. And what I love about that is it doesn't necessarily mean that God feels like that. But what it shows us is it's okay to bring those feelings to God. It's okay to come to God and say, God, I wish you would smash their head in. It's okay to say that as long as you come and listen then to what God might have to say when you've got all that off your chest. So the Psalms have lasted for so long and been such a blessing in Jewish and Christian tradition because the whole of life is there in in its joys and its anguish and extremities in both directions and so those we've got the the law we've got history and then that section of the books you called the wisdom the wisdom literature Mm. and now what follows those so uh, besides the psalms we've got proverbs wise sayings uh Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, it's sometimes called, which some Christians have struggled with because it it deals with the S-E-X category. And that's okay. God invented that. It was just people who messed it up and made it something ungodly. So some wonderful, wise reflections on life. Oh, the book of Job we should throw in as well, by the way, in that section. Big questions of why do things go wrong in life? particularly being godly and tried to do things God's way. And the book of Job gives us a profound answer. I don't know. But I'll tell you what, when you've met God, it will all make sense. And finding God in it all will but, take you through. But Mike, when you're reading um, the book of Job, mm. sometimes you have to grapple with issues. Why did God allow the devil to play with Job? Yeah. You know, because God's our heavenly father. Why didn't he protect him? Well, do you know what? He does protect him at the end of the day. But in in Jewish thinking, everything was under God's rule. Even Satan himself. Satan couldn't do anything without God giving him permission, which is why at the beginning, Satan, or actually in the Hebrew, the accuser, 
we give him a certain characteristic and make him the nasty person with the horns and the pitchfork. But in the Hebrew, it's the accuser who comes. Some scholars even think it might just not be a bad angel, uh, angel at all, but the challenger, the one God's given the role of saying, come on, God, he, here's, here's one we can strengthen their faith through what we take them through. So it is a challenging book. And yeah, it does raise questions of why did this happen? And you know what? There are some questions we never find the answer to until we'll be with Jesus. But what that book tells me is we may not find the answer. And the answer all his friends wanted to give. It's very obvious, John, why you're suffering sin. There's sin in your life. And if there weren't sin in your life, you wouldn't be suffering like this. And having gone through all these chapters and Job saying, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I can't see anything. I don't feel like there's great sin there that's caused this. And of course, he has his encounter with God at the end, which changes everything. And his friends are sent away with their tails between their legs because there wasn't any sin in his life. This was, this was God's work to do something precious in Job's life. And of course, he ends up with even more than he had at the beginning. And we've got a story that has helped countless millions through the ages to know when things go wrong, keep hold of God, keep trusting yes, God. Absolutely. You, you might not see now what's going on, but eventually you will. Eventually it will make sense. Keep trusting him. They are. The Old Testament is filled with stories that have timeless value and principles. Absolutely. And then we've got prophetic books. We've got the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then 12 so-called minor prophets. Minor not because they are less important, but simply their works aren't as long as those four major prophets. These were all prophets raised up by God that, that fit into that history section that we spoke about later. By the way, when you're reading prophets, it's always really helpful to know like the historical context that they were speaking into. You can always get so much more out of that. And a good study Bible will normally have an introduction there to tell you a little bit about Amos was prophesying in the 8th century BC when, when Israel, the northern nation, was becoming very wealthy and very comfortable and in danger of forgetting God. Hmm, where have we heard that in our own lifetime? And so just knowing a little bit of the history will often help. So these prophets slot in to that history period um, that we looked at earlier. You've read the Old Testament many, many times, as I have. If you had to share one thought, one principle for us today from the Old Testament, what would that be? Oh my goodness, what a question to ask me. Um, can I share two? <laughs> So the whole of the Old Testament is this plan of God through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes coming into the land, losing the land, getting back to the land, getting settled, Messiah coming. Hey, there's a story here. God has a plan. I think the second thing I would draw out is that if you really read the Old Testament, um, the God that is revealed there is not at all like the parody that so many people think is there. You know, we often get this thought either from Christians who've not read their Bible enough or certainly from people who are opposed to Christianity 
the the Old Testament as an angry God with a big stick who's ready to thwack you over the head the minute you think something wrong. And then Jesus comes along who's nice and mild and says, just love God and love one another and the world will be nice, won't it? Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, there are some hard bits in the Old Testament. I'd be the first to say that. But the God who is revealed in the Old Testament for me is summed up when God reveals himself to Moses on one of those times when Moses went up Mount Sinai to get the law from God and to talk with God. And on one occasion, Israel has been disobedient. They've built a golden calf, a symbol of Baal and their old gods from Egypt while Moses has been up the mountain and he's so mad and he smashes the stone tablets and has to go up and intercede with God and get new ones. And as he's going up, he says, God, do you know what? I don't know if I can do this unless you reveal yourself to me. Uh, And in Exodus 32, he says, now, Lord, show me your glory. Show me, Lord, what you like. And then in Exodus 33, 34, we get this revelation. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God comes down and reveals himself to Moses. And he says, do you want to know what I'm like? You ready? You ready for this? The Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's who God is. And that's the story that comes out again and again throughout the Old Testament, that despite his people's failing, he's a gracious God, he's a compassionate God, he's a forgiving God. Whenever we come back to him, you know, no matter what we have done, Maybe someone's watching this today and feels that what they have done is so bad, God could never forgive them. Listen, he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. He forgives. All you need to do is come and say, I am deeply repentant, deeply sorry. God, please forgive me. And like that, he can do it. So the sense of story flow that God always has a plan and the sense of a wonderful, gracious, forgiving God who is trying to form a people for himself in order to bring forth a Messiah who will be not just for Israel, but for the whole world. That's absolutely beautiful. Beautiful, Mike. You've uh, worked on two Bibles, um, the, the Christian Basics Bible, and this Bible is? That's the Spiritual Growth Bible. Uh, that just came out in uh, November of uh, 2021. Uh, The Christian Basics Bible designed for new Christians who are not familiar with the Bible and Bible language to help them get into the Bible. Spiritual Growth Bible, again based on New Living Translation, but with lots of helps in it, designed particularly to keep pushing you on in a desire to grow in your relationship with God through Jesus. Beautiful. Mike, it's wonderful to have you on Facing the Canon. Thank you for joining us. It's been great to be with you again. Really enjoyed this time together. I hope you've been inspired by this conversation that I've had with Mike Beaumont on the Old Testament. What beautiful insights and gems we've received. Please join us again for part three with Mike Beaumont next week. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. You've been listening to the J. John podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.jjohn.com 
canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and Other Curious Questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com. <laughs>